Well, welcome back to Plato's Cave. With me today, I have Matthew Flummer. He is a professor of philosophy at Porterville College, where he teaches a variety of courses and writes about free will, moral responsibility, and philosophy of religion when he's not hosting the free will show, which he co-hosts with Taylor Sear. So Matt, thanks for uh, joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this and um, it's kind of funny. This is, this is a, a different conversation than I tend to have because most of the time, you know, I've read like one or two pieces of someone's work and then I'm asking them questions about that work specifically. But for this one, um, you know, I've kind of had a, a pretty broad sampling of, I've listened to probably most episodes of your show with Taylor Sear. Um, but it's funny, you know, you, you guys don't play a huge um, role in the conversations a lot. Did you guys kind of set out with the explicit plan to really just kind of showcase uh, the guests as opposed to interject? Yeah, it, it kind of, when we first had the idea, it kind of evolved as we talked more and more about it. And I think we were fortunate to decide to do this when the shutdown happened. Yeah. So that I, I think a lot of these people might've been bored. And when we <laughs> said, Hey, let's talk about philosophy. And they were like, okay, well, we're, we want to do something where we can interact with people. Uh, so we were, yeah, we were really fortunate that just about everybody we asked to be on the show decided to come on the show. Um, and so it really gave us an opportunity you know, nobody knows who we are. So most people probably don't want to sit and listen to Taylor and I talk about free will. But when we can get, you know, top scholars in the world to come in and talk with us about it and let them showcase their work and maybe how it's changed over the years, it it kind of worked out. And yeah, that's it. It uh yeah, it, it, it was um, even better than it would have been, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was a because you, you guys first published it in uh, the first episodes were like August of 2020 or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, yeah. like a perfect time to get people at their peak boredom. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> to, to do it. Um, I was curious. I mean, how you know, I listened to I've listened to most episodes where you've interviewed someone. And I also listened to kind of the introduction episode. I think, you, you know, it was episode zero where you and Taylor were mm -hmm. talking about, um, you know, your own interests and, and everything. I, I don't remember if you discussed this, but I wanted to ask you, how did you get interested in philosophy generally, but then specifically in free will and moral responsibility topics? Yeah, that, it's a really long story. The, I didn't do an undergrad in philosophy. Mm -hmm. So the only philosophy class I had as an undergrad was a contemporary moral issues class. And I hated it. <laughs> and I don't know if it was the subject matter or the teacher, or if I just wasn't a good student or maybe a combination of all three, but it just, it just didn't strike me at the time. You know, I, I was 18 and didn't know much and didn't even know what philosophy was. And even after taking the class, I still couldn't tell you what philosophy was. <laughs> and it, it wasn't until later I um, I had a kind of a job where I had a lot of time to think. Um, and what I didn't realize that the, the thoughts that I was having were philosophical kinds of thoughts. So some, you know, about even about free will back mm. then. Um, and I I started to read more and study theology. And theology was kind of like my gateway drug into philosophy <laughs> and realized oh, these, these questions that I have are, the are not theological questions per se, but they're more philosophical. 
Um, and it just kind of free will was always one of my interests, even before I realized, you know, I was thinking about philosophy and it just worked out where every place I went, there was a philosopher who was interested in either free will in particular or philosophy of action more generally. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you uh, got your PhD from Florida state university, mm -hmm. which is like a top program in the country for free will and, and responsibility. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a great place. Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting that you said, um, you know, like the theology was kind of the gateway drug to philosophy. Cause I, I, my interest in it is kind of very, it's very similar to that. You know, like I, it's actually funny, you know, I was, I'm applying to, I don't know if I mentioned this in my invite or not, but I'm applying to a master's and PhD programs in philosophy right now. And I, and I do mention in, in the personal statement that it's kind of funny, like one of the first things I started thinking about was, um, you know, the threat of, I, I grew up in a very religious household. And one of the first things I started thinking about was the threat of divine foreknowledge to um, agency and responsibility and stuff. And, it, and I've kind of come full circle over the years. And that's, you know, related to stuff I'd like to study in grad school. So um, yeah, yeah. that was one of the things I was thinking about, too, is like, if God is in control of everything, then how yeah. can I you know, choose of my own free will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I want to return, um, to that topic. Uh, cause I I've loved the, um, I, one of my kind of my favorite clustering of episodes maybe are the ones, I mean, I know you talked with John Martin Fisher about this, but there was some with, with Dirk Paraboom also and Greg Caruso, you know, possible threats to free will or, or moral responsibility. I think those are stuff that I want to get back to. Um, this might be a little bit of an inside baseball question, but when, when um, so if you, you know, cause, cause you do work in, in responsibility and free will, um, what subcategory of philosophy do you say that you work in then? I mean, is it metaphysics? Is it ethics? Is it, cause I mean, a lot of places won't have like philosophy of action as a, like a, like a category to, to, um, pick. So what do you say? Yeah. I, when I was applying for jobs, it was always metaphysics and ethics were mm -hmm. my AOS, AOSs. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think it depends on what aspect of free will and philosophy of action you're working on. I mean, some people do put philosophy of action or free will as their uh, area of specialty. Uh, I, my dissertation was on like metaphysics of, of moral responsibility. Like what, mm -hmm. what kind of facts about you need to be true in order for you to be morally responsible? What kind of, you know, what kind of mental states, what are, what are the, the properties of the mental states that that need to be true in order for you to be morally responsible yeah um that i'm also interested in lots of areas in the metaphysics of, of action in general so it's kind of that crossover but there's also normative aspects which is why i add ethics in because we're talking about moral responsibility and that's a normative concept so mm -hmm. it's kind of yeah it's kind of one of those things that fits doesn't fit neatly into any one category and that's one of the reasons why I like it so much is because it, it affects all of these different areas. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's honestly hard to find an area of philosophy that it doesn't touch. I mean, there's philosophy mm -hmm. of mind, there's value theory, there's even like epistemology when it comes to self-knowledge. I mean, it kind of touches, it touches more areas than it doesn't, I would say for sure. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. And even, well, you know, some people will say it doesn't touch stuff like cognitive science or neuroscience but you guys have done episodes on that <laughs> so yeah yeah maybe, maybe not originally but at least in the last 10 15 years mm -hmm. it's there's been a lot of crossover 
Yeah. I was listening to the Q&A for the second season of your show. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that I really liked is, um, I don't remember it verbatim, but it, but it was something along the lines of, you know, a listener had written to you guys and said, well, you've had all these people on, they all have their own definitions. At the end of the day, is this just a purely semantic argument? Like, what do you mean by moral responsibility or free will? What do you think about the idea that none of this really matters? It's all just semantics. Um, I think at the end of the day, whether, whether we are having verbal disputes, that, that's one question. Um, whether any of this matters is a separate question. Hmm. And I think talking to people like Caruso, I mean, it's really clear that this is stuff that matters. Like we're, we're talking about things that affect not just how we treat each other, um, whether or not we're, we praise and blame each other, but also whether the state can punish us for doing what we do. I mean, if, if nobody's free, then I don't, I don't think the state should punish us. I think it should all be a rehabilitation model. And so that's, yeah. that's a, you know, a, a question that we, uh, we're, philosophical metaphysical question about whether or not we have free will uh downstream you can see clearly how this has practical implications mm. now sometimes i do think we are so going back to the other question about whether this is a, a verbal dispute i think sometimes we are having a verbal dispute um but i think if if people are clear what they mean like i'm using this term and this is what i mean by this term then we can avoid, and that's kind of why we we ask just, I can't remember if we've done it every episode, but just about every episode, we ask people like, what do you mean by free will? Because <laughs> this is an important question to answer before we start talking about it, to, mm -hmm. to make sure that we're not talking past one another. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Th those questions always seem to be misplaced. Like th this is, mm -hmm. I, I think that this is one of the areas of philosophy that matters more clearly than almost any. I mean, it's just right up there with ethics. Um, yeah, I mean, what what type of, um, you know, in Dennett's terms, responsibility or free will is worth wanting, mm -hmm. our conceptions of ourself, I mean, you know, downstream, whether it's retributist, retributivist or forward-looking views of punishment, I mean, all these are like so, so obviously important um, that, yeah. And, and, you know, to your point about Caruso's point, the way that we talk about it, I think probably clearly does have implications for what we think about it also. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. What's your, so, you know, if you had to explain to someone who's new to this area, what do you mean when you say free will or moral responsibility? I go back and forth, but I, I think it's, it's a family of concepts. Um, I think that there's sourcehood ideas when we're talking about free will. And I also think, think that it's the, the ability to do otherwise is built into it so mm. i'm kind of a pluralist when i think about free will that you know in different in different contexts we probably want to focus on one or other aspect more than the others mm. um, but i think it involves at least those two and um, i i tend to if i if i had a default i tend to think of it as the like control necessary to be morally responsible and in the dessert sense so i that, that's okay. the way i take it if okay. if we have free if we don't have free will then there is no 
no no one's morally responsible in the dessert sense where we actually deserve praise or blame or punishment or reward okay okay so you i guess then you wouldn't be a semi-compatibilist of that type right yeah I'm, well <laughs> i'm not I, I i'm not a semi-compatibilist okay i for a while i was convinced by frankfurt cases and then some friends of mine published a couple of really good papers on pap and mm -hmm. now i'm like well i don't i don't think frankfurt cases work anymore <laughs> oh really I that, okay i think that there's a response from the person who wants to hold to a pap that hmm. yeah, they, they, there there is no good frankfurt case that rules out alternative possibilities and the person is morally responsible um hmm. I'm, I'm still thinking about that though because taylor actually um made me aware of time travel in frankfurt cases <laughs> i, I so, didn't know those existed yeah there's a paper published in phil studies i can't remember the author or the name of the paper so sorry for your listeners but if you look it up like a in a google scholar search i'm sure it won't be hard to find mm -hmm. uh, and taylor's actually got a time travel frankfurt case in one of his papers and i've i've actually been thinking in the last four to six months about how to respond to those kind of cases um and i think i might have a response i'm going to try to type it up over the christmas break and see if i can get any interest in it from journals okay cool so so that's something that you and taylor um differ on then yeah, Taylor. Okay. Taylor is uh, semi-compatibilist all the way. Okay. Like he's committed, and I'm wishy-washy, so I go back and forth. I think I hung around Al Mealy too much. He <laughs> he tries to play both sides, and claims to be an agnostic about the whether free will is compatible with determinism. Mm -hmm. um, at, behind closed doors, I think he would admit to being a compatibilist, but officially, he is neither a compatibilist nor a libertarian, and I. I go back and forth between yeah, agnostic autonomism is the, the official name for his view and Mysterianism where oh, okay. you know, like sometimes I think <laughs> it's free will is compatible with determinism and sometimes I don't and I go back and forth. Yeah. And it, it doesn't help that I don't like any of the extant theories of free will. So I'm like, okay, maybe libertarianism is true, but there's not any good theories of libertarianism. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even think there's any coherent um definitions of libertarian free will um but well so circling back for a second okay so if i understand kind of the original frankfurt case in frankfurt's what 69 paper i think it was mm -hmm. the, the jones four case um yeah the point the point of that is supposed to pull the intuition that you know so there's this kind of you know uh, black the evil neuroscientist or i i can't remember there's white there's there's plum or no that's that's um paraboom i can't remember yeah, all the names so, yeah yeah it, it's confusing <laughs> when we use generic names like black and uh, it's black and jones i'm pretty sure from the original <laughs> frankfurt paper yeah but but so there's this um i won't name them there's this like neuros there's this kind of um all-powerful neuroscientist who can uh intervene in the uh, brain of Jones if he were to act in one way. But it turns out kind of happily that he doesn't act in that way. Um, and he does the thing which he had initially wanted to do. He had, as Frankfurt goes on, he kind of has that mesh of his different order desires to do it. He, he, he endorses the desire to do it. And so he does it. And the neuroscientist never intervenes. 
and mm. changes the course of action. And that's supposed to pull the intuition that, wow, look, this guy couldn't have done otherwise, because if, if he had tried, the neuroscientist would have intervened and made sure he did the thing that he was going to do anyway. But yet he still acted of his own desires and his own intentions, and he presumably endorsed those. So therefore, it's supposed to pull the intuition that we're uh, able to ascribe blame or perhaps responsibility judgments, uh, even if someone can't do otherwise. So you, I'm curious, I'm actually curious, can you tell me why you don't find that um, uh, intuitive? Oh, I do find it intuitive. What's so true? when you, yeah. when you tell the story I'm, and you say, well, this person can't do otherwise, but they did what they did on their own. Hmm. Then just that story by itself, I'm like, oh yeah. Like if, if that's the case, then alternative possibilities are not required for being morally responsible for what you do. Hmm. But there there's, you know, since Frankfurt published this paper, there's been tons of responses in the literature and the, the, the way it goes in philosophy is people come up with objections. And so somebody comes back and say, well, we can revise the case to avoid this objection. And then somebody comes up with an objection to the new case and it's this back and forth. And so the, the last iteration, I think the best version of the Frankfurt case um, besides the time travel ones is the Mealy Rob case. Are you familiar with the Mealy Rob case? I don't think so. So Al Mealy and David Rob co-authored a paper where they came up with a Frankfurt case that was supposed to avoid all of the previous worries. So the previous worries were um, people like Robert Kane and um, I forget what Whitaker's first name is, but it's, it's become called like the Kane Whitaker response um, where in the original Frankfurt case, unless you build determinism into the case that you, the, the counterfactual intervener can't guarantee the outcome. So up until like some theories of libertarian free will are going to say that you have alternative possibilities all the way up until the moment of action. And if that's the case, then the person could have done otherwise. The counterfactual intervener wouldn't have had time to intervene. And so people responded and say, well, what, what if there's some kind of involuntary uh, thing that happens that the intervener is watching for? like a blush, like a like tell. He, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If he, if he blushes, then he's going to do this. If he doesn't blush, he's going to do that, but there's still a deterministic causal chain between the blush and the action. So you have all these much ink has been spilt. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've, I've heard, I don't know if this were a fact, but I've heard some journals just refuse to publish stuff on PAP for a long time in Frankfurt cases, yeah. just because there was so much and this back and forth for 20 or 30 years. But the Mealy Rob case is supposed to avoid all the previous worries by being a causal preemption. Sometimes it's called a trumping case, hmm. where you have to imagine the, the counterfactual intervener sets up a deterministic causal chain um, that is leading towards a specific action. And the person is deliberating about whether to perform that action. And at the moment of action, the, the deterministic causal chain has it built in that if they if they arrive at the moment at the, exactly the same time, then the person's free choice trumps the ca deterministic causal chain. But if the person doesn't decide at that time, then the deterministic causal chain will cause the action. Hmm. Does this make sense? I think so. Yeah. So I... it's like if they both if if at exactly the same time they both arrive at that moment, mm -hmm. then the deterministic causal chain will just kind of allow allow the 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 decision to trump it yeah yeah um 
that's like a rough explanation of the case uh, but that's the the general idea and so then there there is no worry about the prior sign or any of the other things that people added to the previous Frankfurt cases and you definitely don't have any alternatives hmm. because you know it's it's waiting up until the moment of action um and there's not a you don't have to build determinism into the case like there's a deterministic causal chain but determinism doesn't have to be true on a universal scale um, and it still seems like the person is morally responsible for what they do so a guy that also went to florida state michael robinson has a really good paper um i think it's called robust flickers of freedom so he's taken one of the responses is called the flicker defense and this is the one where you you retain that ability to do otherwise all the way up until the moment of action and the worry that people like john martin fisher had was that those alternatives aren't robust enough to ground moral responsibility so if you think about what the alternatives are it's either going to be you do the thing on your own or you are caused to do the thing mm. and being caused to do something isn't robust enough or deterministically caused to do something isn't mm. robust enough to ground more responsibility. You want one, you want an alternative possibility in which you are morally responsible. And that's the kind of alternative that can ground more responsibility. And the thing Michael Robinson pointed out was that there's, there's an omission that is an alternative and it's robust enough to ground more responsibility. Hmm. So that's the basic idea. That's super interesting. Yeah. Um, I've, I've gone, I've kind of had my thoughts pulled a bunch of different ways on the Frankfurt cases because on the, you know, like you say, it's very intuitive that, wow, he couldn't have done other, you know, people should kind of catch the intuition like, yeah, he couldn't have done otherwise, but he still did act in this way. And so therefore, you know, we should still be able to blame him. And I, you know, I kind of think that I, you know, I wonder how much that is at work there is something like an evaluation of the person's character, right? So like he couldn't have, you know, no matter what, no matter what was going to happen, um, you know, the, the person under the, the lens of the counterfactual intervener was going to do what they did, right? But mm -hmm. in one case, in, in one case, he does what he does because he wants to do it. And then in the other case, he does what he does because he's manipulated to do it. You know, um, mm -hmm. you, you talked with Paraboom about the manipulation arguments. Um, I, I just, yeah, it's kind of interesting because it's hard for me to separate. It's hard for me to separate feelings about evaluations of that person's character and what that does to downstream judgments versus judgments purely based on the availability of, of counterfactual options. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I yeah, wrote maybe, down, yeah. Maybe you can separate the two conceptually What when we say, well, what are we, what are we asking here in this case? Are we asking about does this person have a certain kind of character or are we asking, are they morally responsible for that action that they do? And I think some people um, don't make it clear when they're talking about moral responsibility, whether they're talking about being a morally responsible agent or being morally responsible, having a certain kind of character and being morally responsible for actions. And some people, we, this came up when we were talking with Seth Sabo, Shabo about Mysterianism that some people think that you're morally responsible for states of affairs that are, and that's different. So we have three things now, your character or who you are as a person, 
your action, and then the states of affairs that are brought about by your action. Mm-hmm. And it, you, that's another kind of thing that you have to be clear about. Like, well, what do you mean by free will? What do you mean by moral responsibility? And what are we morally responsible for? And maybe that's all mixed up in some people's mind. I guess that's an empirical question about what what's causing or what they're thinking about when they make a judgment about the case. Yeah. Yeah, I guess maybe what what I am perhaps convinced by with the case is that it's not semantically, which is not to denigrate the point, it's not semantically enough to just say, well, someone is morally isn't morally responsible because they couldn't have done otherwise, because it does, mm-hmm. like you say, miss the other two aspects of it. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And if you do hinge it, and if you do hinge it on kind of evaluations of the person's character, again, in this case, it, the ability to do otherwise isn't the main thing at, at play. So it kind of, mm-hmm. I wonder if it, it, if the cases are really good at highlighting what you do in fact value about yeah, responsibility. Maybe, yeah, yeah, because yeah, some people don't think it's, uh, it's not the actions that matter. It's like the quality of will that <laughs> you display when you perform the action. And that's, that's what we're really interested in. Um, but, you know, alternative possibilities might not be necessary for that kind of theory of responsibility. Hmm. Yeah, this, this kind of digression was making me think about um, you. You had said in your Q&A that Peter Van Inwagen had just given up on trying to make any progress on free mm-hmm. will. And because he just it's he's just like, it's too hard. He just kind of threw his hands up. Do you ever I mean, do you ever kind of get that? thought yourself like why am i working on this there's too many isms and ists it's just it's all just like a mess at this point we're not going to make any progress uh that might be where i'm at <laughs> and why i <laughs> why i can't just say well i'm a compatibilist or i'm a libertarian like i, I think we have free will but the details I, i'm kind of with ben Enwagen here it's like if if somebody as smart as him can't figure this out then i don't think there's any hope that i'm going to figure it out I'm just waiting for people smarter than me to come up with something that convinces me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like I, as so, as someone who's kind of, you know, really interested in this stuff and hoping to study it more, I, I do vacillate between those two positions of like, you know, I'll, I'll read a paper and I'll kind of have like this, this initial, Oh, wow. I really agree with these parts of the paper. I really disagree with these parts. And then I don't know, I'll either talk to the author or read, some other commentary on the paper or something that intersects and i'm like i i just i don't know what i think at this point that i (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's a common thought that i have too yeah which is uh, you know it's easy to opine about it but it also is what makes the debate rich i mean if it was you know if it was easy then it wouldn't be something that you could devote you know five years in a phd program studying so i guess you can kind of look at it from other perspective true yeah um going back well so I, I have asked you about your own view, which I, which I think is, um, is interesting now in light of having, you know, heard a lot of episodes with you, but I was curious, do you, cause, um, I'm talking with Eddie Namias in January or February of the new year, and he's done really cool work on a lot of, I guess you could call it X-Fi work on people's, mm-hmm. you know, intuitions about, or, or pre-philosophical notions about all of this stuff. What do you think? the kind of default or lay intuition of the type of freedom we have is? Uh, I, I would have said libertarian until I started reading these X-Fi papers. 
And now I'm not sure because depending on which paper you read, sometimes they come to different conclusions. Mm. So I'm, I'm not sure. And I, and I think it might be the way that you frame the questions that you ask. Yeah. Um, I remember early on in the XFi work on free will, uh, people were showing that if, if we tell the story in this way, then people have compatibilist intuitions. And if we tell the story in this way, then people have libertarian intuitions. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Like when we talked to Manuel Vargas, he seemed to think that the, the folk concept is libertarian, but I'm not sure. Like, like yeah. you said, I could, I could read something tomorrow that would convince me that it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, and you know, I don't know because, you know, like, I really, I want to dig into all of this literature before talking with Eddie about this, but I, from, from what I understood, I, I thought that there were a plurality of studies showing that people's intuitions were often, if not almost always undermined by many specific instances of, of, of determinism or, or what they might assume is like a bypassing of, of people's kind of agency. So if you give people, um, and you know, some, someone like uh, Gary Watson has this in his 1987 paper, Responsibility and the Limits of Evil, where he, he gives the case mm -hmm. of Robert Harris. Um, and, this, and this guy is supposed to be, you know, like the most heinous criminal we've ever conceived of. And he did all these horrible things. And then he tells you about his backstory. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, you know, just as horrible. And, you know, you really just, your intuitions are just completely changed. And, and he has that phrase, you know, you hear about his backstory and you think, well, no wonder he did what he did. And that's supposed to be this kind of, I take it there's like, you know, the door is opened a little bit to, to determinism's intrusion on those studies. And the same thing happens with someone like Charles Whitman and the brain tumor. And it mm -hmm. seems like from, from what I understand, people's intuitions are generally pulled by specific instances of determinism. But then if you phrase things more generally, then people look much more like compatibilists, which I don't know if there's an in inherent contradiction there or not, because everything is going to look like some specific instance of determinism in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to say because it's been a while since I've read a lot of this literature. Um, and I'm, I'm not up to date with some of the more recent stuff. So maybe we'll have to have a X five season on the free will show where we, where yeah. I can get back up to speed. <laughs> yeah, that, that, but yeah, I'll be, I'll be yeah. interested to hear what, your conversation with Eddie Namias. Um, yeah. It's, I, I just don't know what, like I said before, I'm, I'm not sure what to say when it comes to these empirical studies. Like I, I've got a paper in a book up there from the, when, when I was at Florida State, Al Mealy got the, the grant from the Templeton Foundation, the Big Questions and Free Will Project. And a, one of the books that came out of it is called Surrounding Free Will. And there's a paper in there where the researchers, Bertram Malley, and I forget who the co-author was, um, do surveys and instead of giving people vignettes and scenarios and asking them about their intuitions about about these cases they just ask them well what do you what do you think free will is like what comes to mind when you hear the word free will and people consistently gave answers that could be consistent with determinism or indeterminism so it's like oh yeah the ability to make choices or whatever and it, it, so it's almost like the the folk probably don't have a consistent view when it comes to whether free will is compatible with determinism or not yeah 
Yeah, that's I yeah, I'm really I'm excited to talk with Eddie about that because I don't know. I mean, I I think that I would if I had to put money on it, I think that most people do endorse some notion that you know, they exercise contracausal free free will. Like they they exercise some sort of contracausal power. If you if you rewound the universe, you know, if you can you, some decision is made and you pause the universe and you rewind it to before that decision was made and you hit play again. And it's not due to anything like quantum randomness that doesn't really get it, you know, any robust notion of freedom that we have. I feel like people, and I I don't know, this is just an intuition, but I do feel like most pre-philosophical notions or lay people endorse at least implicitly the notion that you really can through like this sheer Kantian will like step outside the stream of causation. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wanted to ask um, uh, Manuel Vargas about this, but he was, he was too busy to come on the show. Cause I, I always wonder if, um, you know, cause he has that revisionist view uh, mm-hmm. of, of free will. And, and I always, I kind of wonder if that makes him committed to, I, I just find it interesting that he endorses that revisionist view on the one hand, but he also thinks that most people are uh, libertarians on the other hand, because it seems like if, if he believes both of those things, then he should be kind of committed to the project of disavowing people of libertarian free will. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You would think that. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. I don't know what I think about that. I mean, it's kind of, kind of part of the project. I mean, when, when we say that we need to revise our concept, it's, it's like, well, you, you, you formally thought it was this, but it's actually this, like, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the examples that he gives are similar too, where, you know, if we're thinking about a revisionist concept of like marriage, um, you formally thought it was just this, Mm -hmm. but we're, we're revising it to this over here. Um, So I think part of that might be disabusing people of their former concept. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, marriage is a good example because, you know, you could have previously thought about it as just something between a man and a woman, whereas now it can be uh, very plural in that sense. So that's interesting. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good example because it does, like being as young as I am, my views have just been revised on that. Like it was something that was changing as I was even formulating concepts of that stuff. Um, yeah, I think for most of the Western world, it's that way. Yeah. I mean, if you just look back, not even that long ago, like everybody thought marriage was between a man and a woman. And now most people mm. disagree. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's like marriage. I mean, if you think about what marriage is in the first place, uh, it seems like there's been a, a not just who can get married, but what it is. Um, there's been a lot of revision to that concept where it's almost just like it's just a contract between two people now. Yeah. It's like very minimal. Of mm-hmm. what what i think most people mean by marriage and that's probably like i don't know if it's an explanation of um like the the way marriage goes in our culture or or the other way around yeah the causation there is interesting yeah yeah definitely i i said i wanted to circle back around to this and i and i want to now just in case you know i don't want to run out of time before we get to it um I had started thinking about these things because of the potential threat of, you know, a, a d- d- divine foreknowledge, like a God's divine foreknowledge into these, um, 
questions of agency and responsibility. And I loved the episode that you did on divine foreknowledge. Um, but you know what I was kind of, I was wondering about what you thought about uh, this, this kind of potential critique. It doesn't seem like, so it doesn't seem like divine foreknowledge in and of itself does anything impactful for free will because you know, I get the intuition that just because someone knows what you're going to do before you do it doesn't really have any bearing, but when you combine it in maybe, you know, specifically like a Christian sense with, which, uh, with a God who also has omnipotence and omnipresence. So he knows everything that's going to happen. He's in control of everything that happens and he is aware or sort of you know there for everything that happens. That seems to me to be a very robust threat to foreknowledge um, in the same way that if the, in the Frankfurt case, um, it's almost sort of a dialing up of the counterfactual intervener's powers, right? So he, it's almost, it almost, I mean, I'm curious what you think about this, but, but that case of the Christian God seems like it is a case in which the counterfactual intervener is setting up everything and intervening in everything. Yeah, it depends on how much you build into the argument. When we talked to Linda Zagzebski and John Martin Fisher, we, we talked about this argument. Mm. And the the concepts that we were using to get the argument off the ground didn't really um, have as much to do with God's control over the universe. It's, it was more just like, can, can we run the argument with, with just omniscience, where God is never wrong, and he knows the future and the the threat seems to be that there's no alternative possibilities mm -hmm. so it's you know you don't have to have god causing things in the world you just have to have god knowing things um and so in that case it's it seems like if if you've got the view that alternative possibilities are required for freedom um, and god knows what you're going to do before you do it and he can't be wrong <laughs> then you don't have alternative possibilities now, a lot of people, there's a lot of different ways you could respond to this kind of argument. And some people do respond, well, you know, the, the, his knowledge isn't causal. So God's not causing me to do anything. Yeah. I, I just can't do otherwise. Um, and it's a whole nother problem when you say, well, yeah, God doesn't just know what you're going to do before you do it. God's actually like involved in the causal order and bringing things about and you know, depending on how strong of a view of God's sovereignty you want to build into the to the argument, it could be much more mm. uh, interesting if you think it's, you know, the, the problem of God and, and freedom is interesting or much more potent um, of an argument. Mm. Yeah, I um, because, yeah, you're right that um, it definitely ratchets up the potency as you mm -hmm. give him more and more powers. Um, because it seems like, you know, in your show, you know, you've talked about multiple kind of, um, you might call them bases for a certain type of freedom, you know, or, or a certain basis for responsibility, something like sourcehood, the ability to do otherwise, um, the subjective experience of agency, or the condition of not being manipulated by another agent, mm -hmm. right? And um, it seems like the most clear case in which someone's not responsible is a case in which they are manipulated by another agent. That, that seems to be one where the majority of views will concede that 
you know, look, if I'm pulling your strings, <laughs> then, then you're less responsible in a way in which you're not, if just the universe is kind of pulling your strings, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that, that was, it was always kind of a, an interesting question to me because in the Christian conception of, of God, it seems like he is pulling every string that exists. Um, and when you combine that with the dessert practice of sending people to hell, that seems like a very odd and in conflict combination of, of things to hold. Yeah. Well, Christians are definitely not united in that, that, that kind of True. Uh, conception of God pulling everyone's strings. Hmm. Um, but for those, you know, it's, it's different questions for different people. Um, if you've got one view of God controlling the world, you've got one set of problems. And if you've got another view of God controlling the world, you've got a different set of problems. So it's like, everybody's got problems. It just depends on which problems you want to, you want to deal with. Hmm. True. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, it's a really interesting question. And I, I wonder if, um, I don't know, it's interesting, you know, as more and more kind of variations or sects or denominations of Christianity are created and grow I don't know. It's interesting that it, it kind, of, kind of resembles the free will debate in a lot of ways. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of different isms about, about God. Um, no. well, so, so circling back. Um, oh, I, I loved, I loved your most recent episode with Christian Miller. Well, I guess second mm-hmm. most, cause one just got published either this morning or yesterday. Um, uh, no, Christian Miller was the most recent one. We, oh, really? We'll have another okay. one coming out next week. Oh, okay. Oh, maybe I just saw the announcement for it today or something. Yeah. Um, He talked about situationism, uh, Mm -hmm. which is really, it's a very cool way to introduce a new threat to determinism um, because it's sort of a, it's at a much more pragmatic level than something like the the general thesis of determinism. Um, What do you think about the potentiality for social psych or cognitive psych to make the most robust intrusions into our ability of our own agency or our, our assessment of our own agency rather. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the cases like situationism are interesting for multiple reasons. Um, and I think they, they are kind of eye-opening when you, just to give an example, like one of the ones we talked about with Christian Miller was uh, you take people in a controlled environment and you're measuring their responses in a situation like where someone clearly needs help mm. and you measure whether or not the people in the experiment help. And the only variable that's different between the two case, test cases is whether or not the smell of fresh baked cookies was in the air. Yeah. And people were way more likely to help if there's fresh baked cookies, uh, the smell is in the air. And so it seems like that's something that is irrelevant and shouldn't matter to how we respond to a situation, you would think that, um, yeah, if I saw somebody that was help that needed help, I would help. And it wouldn't matter whether I smelled cookies or not, <laughs> yeah. but the, the results are clear. Um, people overwhelmingly m- are more likely to help. So what, mm. do, what do we make of that? And I tend to think that we should make it of it that we're way worse than we think we are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we allow irrelevant factors to contribute to or influence our behavior when we shouldn't, we shouldn't, but we do. And so like what conclusion you want to draw from that? I'm not sure, but I definitely think we, it, we should be 
we should approach ourselves with more sober judgment and think that we're not as good as we think we are. Yeah. Christian had some saying like, uh, you know, the, the, the scope or size of our virtue is way smaller than we think it is, which is, yeah, yeah, it is very true. I mean, people, you know, everyone thinks that they would be the German who stood up to the Nazis, you know, but, but that's just not how history goes, which is interesting. Yeah. Who knows what you would do in a a situation? I would like to think that I would, (laughs) I would be the one to stand up to them, but Mm. you know, who knows, like maybe I would be a coward. I, I don't know. Yeah. Zimbardo, uh, Philip Zimbardo had this really kind of interesting takeaway from, and I know that, you know, the validity of his experiments have been put in question in recent years, but he had this really cool kind of takeaway from his experience, you know, the, the Stanford prison experiments, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> where he developed that kind of, he- I don't remember the exact name of the organization, but it was like a, a heroes in training or heroes in waiting kind of practice almost where you would train yourself to have that helping kind of heroic response in the same way that someone like a firefighter would, you know, if any of us are presented with a burning building and there's someone that we could save, most of us are probably going to do nothing mostly because we're afraid, but also because we don't know how to save someone. Mm -hmm. And it's a very cool, I don't know the, the thing that I took away from that episode is that it sort of um, in the beginning of the episode seemed to degrade the validity of virtue ethics because our virtues and vices are much smaller and less potent than we think they are. But then it actually, at the end of the episode kind of gave it some power because, wow, you know, you Mm -hmm. want to condition these vices and these, well, these virtues, not, not these vices um, in a way in which, you know, you are, you're almost kind of doing, you're you're predetermining yourself or you're hoping to, at least it's this Mm -hmm. really interesting kind of forward looking deterministic view of yourself. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, if you're talking about virtue, I I think Aristotle would agree with you that, you know, virtue is a habit. So and the only way to get a habit is to do something over and over again. So when I think of the like conversations like we had with Christian Miller, the thing that I I think of similar things like I, I, I need to know myself and know my own limitations and take if I don't want to be that way, I need to take action like you were saying too um ingrained habits of well maybe i should be more pay more attention Mm. to the people around me when they need help and to you know tell myself i'm going to help when i see somebody who needs help um so that i don't get into that situation where either i don't notice and i should have noticed or i notice and i just chicken out for whatever reason and decide to do something else or be selfish instead Mm. yeah yeah it's um it's kind of a very, it's one of the most positive spins on our, our lack of kind of, you know, courage or agency mm-hmm. that, that I've heard, um, which is a, it's a cool takeaway from, it and I, I really like the episode. Um, I know we're coming up on an, on an hour. Um, so I don't want to take too much of your time, but what do you, um, well, I know you, we just talked a little bit about, um, kind of X-Fi stuff, but do you have anything, um, that you, you and Taylor have planned coming down the pike for, uh, the free will show? We do. Well, nothing in stone for um, as far as X-Fi or anything like that. We, we, our next season, we'll start recording. We always try to record during breaks because we're both teachers and yeah. we know a lot of people are on the semester or quarter system and the natural breaks that academics have over the holidays and the summer. So we'll be recording a whole season 
of episodes with early career philosophers. Um, And it'll be kind of like a grab bag because they're all working on different things. Um, We've got one that's going to be on the manipulation argument, one that's going to be on freedom and foreknowledge. So it's going to be a lot of different topics, just whatever they're working on, um, because we think that there's good work being done by uh, either people who are just out of grad school or who haven't been made tenure yet. Um, And we want to highlight the, the, the good work that's being done by these people. That's super cool. Okay. I'm very, I'm very excited for that season. Yeah. Have you had, um, this is a selfish question. Have you had, um, anyone on to talk about the reactive attitudes yet? Because I I don't think I've seen an episode Mm -hmm. on those. Okay. Okay. No, we haven't. And that's going to be one of the ones that this work, should I, maybe I should give a preview. So there's a philosopher named Hannah Tierney and she is working on a paper that's co-authored on a response to manipulation arguments is based on Strassonian view or Strassonian views are the ones that focus on reactive attitudes of more responsibility. Um, so you could stay tuned for that one. It'll be released sometime in between January and May. I don't know exactly when, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but yeah, so we'll devote at least a little bit of time to, to explaining the reactive attitude view of more responsibility since we didn't cover it. Mm-hmm. And then seeing her con- contribution to uh, how we use that in a response to the manipulation argument. Okay, cool. Awesome. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that then. Um, yeah, Matt, stay on the line for a second, but I just wanted to thank you again for doing this. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, like I said, I, I can't recommend uh, the Free Will Show more. I think it's a wonderful... Uh, podcast series that Matt and Taylor are putting together and if you want to uh, to check that out I'll leave links in the description uh, below and if you want to support this show you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers you can share it on social media rate it on Apple podcasts or like and subscribe and you can also connect me with uh, guests or recommended topics to cover and you can get in contact with me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And as always, thank you for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave.